0: Have your own way in us now. God, as we um, stand in awe and wonder of the glory of your great name, your grace toward us, Lord, we want to submit to you. Lord, by your Spirit, through your word, would you have your way in us? Would you mold us now, shape us uh, into the image of Christ? Um, So, Lord, open our eyes. Soften our hearts, open our ears, that we may hear your word and be changed and transformed by it, God. However you will, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. Well, we have uh, the kids in with us this morning. Uh, so, kids, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're excited to have you. Uh, and as always, um, we have the the fill-in for you uh, to uh, to fill out. Um, kids, if you didn't get a fill-in, put your hand up. Um, chocolate is on the line here Um, we want you to have oh there's some over this way Um, so yeah fill that out as we go the answer is going to be up on the screen and we want you to uh, to be paying attention and listening and if you're filling that out at the end of the service I'm going to be in the fellowship hall with a big bag of chocolate um, because God's word is sweet uh, because it's a good thing to listen and learn from God's word and so um, if you're too young and the whole like spelling, writing thing isn't, you're not there yet, draw me a picture. I would love a picture. Um, and so I will see you back here after the service. Um, parents, I am free and excited to give out candy, but if you need to use that as a training tool, um, let me know. I'm with you. Um, and and uh, just know that we just want to embrace a little extra chaos this morning. This is life as a family, as a church. Um, I don't know about your house. My house is never quiet for an hour, not ever, um, and so uh, we're going to have some noise, and that's beautiful. We love it. That's okay. Um, turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Genesis chapter 11. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. We have spent the last six months working our way through um, chapter 1 through uh, the beginning of 11, and uh, we called that series... It was good. It was good because in those first chapters, we see God's beautiful creation and the wonder of all of that, um, the creation of mankind, the Garden of Eden. This was the world as it was intended to be. Chapters 1 to to the beginning of 3, it was good. It was very good. God stood back and said, behold, it is very good, and there 's so much we can learn from looking at how God created the world as it was intended uh, and then in chapter three, we switched from it was good to well, it was good, and we see um, the serpent, Satan coming into the garden, tempting. We see Adam and Eve doubting God rebelling against God, and, and sin and the curse enter into our world, and things began to fall apart. And we see the world in all of its brokenness and rebellion against God. We see the damage of sin. Uh, But even in that, God was already making promises. Genesis 3.15, we we won't get past that as we work our way through Genesis or the Bible. Genesis 3.15, God promised there's going to be uh, a son, a male offspring of the woman, who would come and the serpent would bruise his heel, but he would crush the head of the serpent. He's the rescuer. He's going to come and, and undo the works of the devil. He's going to come and undo the damage of curse, of the curse and sin, restoring the world to the way God intended for it to be. So that's the, the first 11 chapters um, they're, they're broad. They're looking at the, the, the whole world and the idea of the creation and the fall. Uh, now there's this significant shift right here as we come into chapter 12. Um, this is the hinge that the whole book of Genesis f- uh, flexes on. Um, it zooms in. It goes from the whole world down to one family, the family of Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. And on it goes. And, and, and in zooming in what we see through the rest of Genesis is, is God is laying this foundation for his promise. He's made the promise and now he's building it. He's working it out. And so we're going to be in this series, Genesis 11, all the way through the, to 36, um, calling it a firm foundation. Um, this is God laying the, the firm foundation of our faith uh, in the book of Genesis. So that's where we're, that's where we're at in the in the scope of things. Kids, I wonder um, do your parents ever make you promises? Maybe they little promises like, hey, we're going to get ice cream today on our way home. Um, maybe a little bit bigger promises like, we're going to get you a new bike this summer, right? It's good stuff happening. Um, I want to tell you a story. Um, I want to tell you a story about Mrs. Anderson when she was a little girl. Um, she had a promise. Her Grandma had given their, uh, some money to her family, and her parents told her and her brother, hey, we're going to go to Disney- Disneyland. How's that for a promise? Anyone, any, any kids like that promise? We're going to go to Disneyland? Yeah, that's a good one. They were so excited, and, they were, and you have to know this about Mrs. Anderson. She loved Disney. She was so excited, and so they waited and waited. And you know, when you're waiting for a promise, those days seem to take months It feels like forever. But you know what happened next? All of a sudden, the family needed a new car. And so that money that was supposed to go to Disney ended up in a new vehicle. And Disney never happened. They were promised Disneyland, and it never came. How would that feel? Ouch. I was pretty disappointed. Um, Sometimes that happens, doesn't it? Your parents make a promise. They love you. They're not lying to you. They want to give you good things. They sincerely want to to do it. But sometimes, as parents, we make promises and then things happen. Things that we don't expect. Hey, we're going to get ice cream on the way home. I didn't realize the ice cream store is closed before we got there. I promised and now I can't give it. I'm sorry. Things happen that we we can't expect and, and things that we don't control. Car breaks down. We just, we have to do it. It's out of my control. I didn't see it coming. And so sometimes his parents were not able to keep our promises. Well, we're going to look today at a promise from God. And you know what's really cool about a promise from God? When God makes a promise, is there anything coming that he does not expect? Anything coming he doesn't expect? No. No. Is there anything coming that he doesn't have control over? No, I like that. There we go. God's promises never fail. They never fail. Sometimes we have to wait a long time to see God's promises come about, but they always come true. So today we're going to look at God's promise. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 11 um, in verse 10, and we're going to work all the way through to chapter 12, verse 3. And, and what I want us to see here is is God's unstoppable promise. God's unstoppable promise. That's the, the title right at the top. We kind of went out of order, kids, so you can fill that in. Now, the end of chapter 11 is actually like the transition. This is, this is kind of the middle ground uh, at the end of the, the first section and moving into the second section. And, uh, it, this takes us from it was good into the firm foundation. But look with me. Chapter 11, we're going to read uh, first um, verses 10 to 26. Hey, I didn't take a second. Um, I want you to have a Bible on your lap. And uh, so if you don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and put your hand up and one of our ushers will get you uh, a Bible. We want you to have God's word open in front of you. Um, I have no authority. This is, this is our authority. Um, and so we want, you, we want you to be looking We want to be looking together uh, at God's Word and learning from that. Um, Not learning from me. I have no wisdom. So, um, Genesis 11, starting in chapter 10 through to 26. And and what we see here in this section is God's unfolding plan. That's point one, God's unfolding plan. Um, You can follow along as I read. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was a hundred years old, "...when he fathered Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arphaxad 500 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arphaxad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years, and had other sons and daughters." And when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sareg lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sareg lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. All right, kids, be honest. Is that kind of a weird piece of scripture? Yeah. It's okay to say it. Is that even a little bit boring? What's going on here? Right? It's this list of, list of names. Um, God's not wasting space in his Bible. All of these things are important. Um, there's important stuff going on here. This, this list of names in the Bible, that's called a genealogy. Um, we've been through these before. You kids were with us back in Genesis 5. Um, and that, now I'm sure you noticed it's not just names, right? But it's sons of. It's a family tree working its way down through the generations. Now, if you were here last week, this probably sounds really familiar. Um, we looked at a genealogy back in chapter 10 that has a lot of overlap with this genealogy here in chapter 11. Um, the first part of the list is basically the same, not quite identical. The one in chapter 10 um, has the father and will list multiple sons and then the kids of those different sons. And so it's more branches on the family tree. You're getting a bigger picture of kind of the full family. But the the genealogy here in chapter 11, um, this is what we call a linear genealogy. This is one father and one son and one son and one son. It's following it straight down and kind of just ignoring the rest of the branches on the tree. It's one family line. And the family line that we follow here um, is actually different from the one in chapter 10, it, it, or, it, or it splits off. Chapter 10, verse 25, it comes down to Eber. Uh, and Eber, if you remember, had two sons. We talked about this. Um, there's Peleg and Joktan, and, and so in that one, Moses follows the line of Joktan and gives us a whole bunch of sons of Jocton, and he just kind of ignores Peleg. But he doesn't ignore Peleg because he's not important. It's quite the opposite. He's saving the best for later. He's like, we'll get to, to Peleg. That's where the cool stuff is, but let's just kind of finish the family tree here, and then we'll, then we'll come to that. Well, now he's coming to it. Now he's building out this list. He starts back at Shem again, and he works down to Eber, and when he gets to Eber, um, he, he ignores Jocton, and he follows Peleg, and, and he works down through Peleg, verse 16, and, and who does he come to at the bottom? There are three sons, and one of those sons is Abram. All right, Abram. His name's going to get changed a little bit later. Anyone know what his name is going to get changed to? Kids, give it to me. Abraham. Abraham. All right, now I'm going to try, because right now he's Abram. I'm going to fail a few times. I'm going to I'm gonna try to talk about him as Abram here, because that's his name right now. Um, and the reason for this, this linear genealogy, Um, those were used to prove something. You're proving your ancestry. You're trying to to show maybe you're the next one in line to be king, or maybe you're entitled to inheritance because of who your ancestors were. That's what a a linear genealogy was for. But is Abram a king? No, not exactly. Certainly not yet. Um, Is there some big pile of cash or land that Abram is trying to claim? No, that's not it. But who does this genealogy run back to? Who does this prove that that Abram is a descendant descendant of this? This proves, as you look at it, that that Abram was a son of Shem, right? But why? Why would Abraham need to prove that he was a descendant of of Shem? What what difference does it make? Why does it matter? If we look back again, chapter 9, starting in verse 25, and, and I'll just be honest, man, I didn't realize until we had come through this how significant this little chunk of Scripture was. Um, remember Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth? And um, those were Noah's only sons. After the, the flood, the whole world is descended from those three men and their, and their wives. And there's the story of, of Noah and he sins and, and, and uh, Ham... Um, Kind of exposes his sin and and sins against his father. Shem and Japheth covered their father's sin. They respect their father. And so Noah says this um, back in in chapter 9, starting in verse 25. And you have to know Canaan is the son of Ham um, who sinned against his his father. And Noah says this, Cursed be Canaan, a um, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So there's this promise here. God promised that his his blessing would come through Shem. That that, that through the line of Shem, God would bring his, his blessing, his rescuer. So God blessed Shem and now Moses takes all this time to show us, hey, Abram, track it back. He's part of the line of Shem. He's one of Shem's descendants. He's one of the ones in the line that God said his blessings going to come through this line. Now, there's another cool thing here. Um, now I'm really going to test your memory. It was like two months ago, back in February, when, when you kids were with us last, when we were looking at Genesis chapter 5. And the genealogy there goes from Adam to Noah. And so we actually we can track from, from Abram all the way back to Adam. But that one from, from Adam to Noah um, has ten names and ends with three sons. And then this one from Shem to Abram has ten names and has, ends with three sons. So there's this parallel there. But there's something different. The one in chapter 5. Do you remember the phrase that was repeated over and over and over again back in chapter 5? Every generation, what is it? He died. he died. And he died and he died and he died and he died. Right? And this was, the, this was the godly line of Seth that we're following. And yet Moses is just putting that in front of us over and over again. Sin happened and guess what? He died and he died and he died and he died. And we come to this genealogy in chapter 11. Nobody dies. Okay, question, are all these people still alive? No. No, they died. Um, But it's not written the same way. That's not put in front of us the same way. And the reason is the focus now, we've changed. We're no longer talking about the curse of sin and the effect of death and the brokenness and the ugliness. Now we're talking about God's promise. And he's painting a picture and and there's hope here. This is no longer uh, the, the curse of sin. This is God's plan of salvation. This is no longer the the story of of death and sin. Now this is the story of God's rescue. So it isn't just a list of names. This is proof of God's unfolding plan. This is proof of God's unfolding plan. Now, hundreds of years go by here, right? From, From the end of the flood until Abram is born is probably about 350 years. Kids, have any of your parents made you wait 350 years for ice cream? Nobody? Maybe just 100 yeah. Smart Alec Anderson, kids. No, that's a long time to wait. But God is at work. He's filling out His promise little by little. And, and just because it, God works slowly sometimes doesn't mean God isn't at work. Doesn't mean that, that His promise is forgotten, right? That is so easy for us to forget. Even today we get impatient. We start to wonder God, I've been praying about this for for months, maybe years. It's easy to to, to start to think, God, have you forgotten me? Are you even listening? Do you even care? God's timing is not our timing. But he's faithful. He's patient. Even through generation after generation, God doesn't lose sight of his plan and what he's doing. He's he's working it all together. He's fulfilling his promises. So that's verses 10 to 26, we see God's unfolding plan. We see his faithfulness moving it forward through the generations. Now let's look at verses 27 to 32. And what we see here um, is God's unlikely pick. God's unlikely pick. Look with me starting uh, in verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. So Terah was the father of of Abram and and Nahor and Haran, And, and now we pick up there again. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka, Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran they settled there. And The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. It's kind of a crazy family, right? But that's, that's the way it was back then, that's, and that's the way it happened. So um, Nahor um, marries his brother's daughter, his niece. And again, that's just the what happened. Um, but that's not really what's important here is this, this family unit and, and the craziness. What's important uh, is the main thing we see in this verse is that, that Abram's not a great choice for God's plan. He's just not a good cho- choice, not a good pick. Um, There are a few things that are just really not good about this. Um, first of all, Abram worshipped other gods. He worshipped other gods. If, if God is pouring out his blessing on the lineage of Shem and he says the, the, the Lord Yahweh will be his God, well, Abram doesn't fit that. Abram and his family lived in the city of Ur in the region of Chaldea. So here's a, a map for you. So you can get a sense of where we're at. So Egypt down on the bottom. Israel would be just up. You see the promised land there. Ur is way over here um, under the magnifying glass. That's the area of Chaldea. So that's where we're, that's where we're at. Um, and in that area, the city of Ur, was an important city uh, for, for the worship of the moon god. Now, the moon god does not have the coolest name. Um, the moon god's name is Nana. Um, my kids call their grandma Nana. I, I don't think um, the Chaldeans would be really impressed by that. But if you go to modern-day Iraq, um, you can actually see a, a ziggurat, this, this big building, temple, tower, um, built to the god Nana. And it was built by, by this king, Urnamu, um, who probably overlapped with Abram. This was probably built during the lifetime of Abram. And so you can see um, that's still there today. And that's just this big, massive emblem saying, idolatry happened here. They worshiped other gods. And so listen to what Joshua says, Joshua 24.2. It says, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Beyond the Euphrates, that's Ur. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor. And they served other gods. There's the history. There's the backstory. They, they served other gods. Actually, even if you look closely at the names of Sarai and Milcah, those, those probably come um, out of that pagan worship culture. Abram and his whole family are idolaters. They're pagans. They worship false gods. Um, but it wasn't just that. Not only is Abram a a, a false god worshiper, but Abram's wife is barren. And we're told that, verse 30, specifically, um, now Sarai was barren. And just in case you missed it or you thought maybe that wasn't important, he repeats it again. She had no children. That's what barren means. She's not able to have kids and she doesn't have kids. That's a tragic thing. That's a sad thing. But there's more there than just the sadness of it. Remember God's unfolding plan. His His great rescue from all the way back in Genesis 3.15. um, God said um, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Right at the center of that promise is what? Offspring. There has to be a child. and, And even specifically, a child of the woman. And now here's Abram, he's worshiping other gods and his wife can't have kids and so he's not the guy. This is not a good choice, God, to fulfill your promise. It's as if God was looking for someone to to make them the richest person in the world and and Abram is like a billion dollars in debt, right? Like he is negative good for this job. He's in trouble. If I was looking for someone to fulfill God's promises, like we would come to Abram and go hard pass. Not the guy. Not the guy. There's lots of fish in the sea. There are lots of other people. Um, Tara had two other sons. Maybe try one of them. But God doesn't do that. God chose Abram on purpose. He chose the false God worshiping, no children having Abram. We talk about God's unstoppable promise. It's important to remember why God's promise is unstoppable. God chose the perfect person to really make that clear. God does this so frequently through the Bible. God chooses the weakest and the worst. Like he picks the wrong people on purpose, the weakest and the worst, and he does it on purpose. Nobody. Nobody's going to look in at Abram and think, obviously, this is the guy. This guy's got it all together. It's so clear that God would choose this guy. No, Abraham's a mess, and that's exactly the point. The point is it's all God. It's all God. Abraham is bringing nothing to the table. God chooses the weakest and the worst, and then God gets all the glory, right? Nobody, nobody asks, wow, was it, was it Abram that did that or God? Because Abram did, did none of that. And, and God still does that today. He still does that today. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Paul is writing to the church, and he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That's Abram. Foolish, weak, despised, nothing. That's us. Let's be honest. If you're a Christian today, it's not because you were some great asset to God's plan, right? Right? It's not because you had some skill or some wisdom that God needed you on his team and God was like, oh yes, that person, that's what, I, that's what I really need. No, God doesn't need anything and he certainly doesn't need anything from us. It's not as though God had to look far, but God is looking for and intentionally uses the weak and the small and the unimpressive and the ill-suited. And here's why. The next three verses in First Corinthians, he goes on to explain. So God chooses what is what is foolish and weak and low and despising the things that are not. Um, verse 29 then says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord again he does it on purpose to show his glory he takes the ones that are that are weak and low and nothing and he becomes our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption so that no one gets to stand up and say you're welcome god no one gets to stand up and say look at all the things that i did look at all the things that i know look at all the good that i have no one gets to brag except God. As God fulfills his plan and as God saves his people, only God gets the glory. Only God. God called Abraham or Abram. God made this unlikely pick, the, the pagan with the barren wife for that very reason, so that everyone would see that it was God who did it all it's the opposite of the Tower of Babel, right? They're trying to get themselves up to God and God says, nope, not gonna happen that way. No one's gonna brag before me. This is really bad news. This is really, really bad news for the wise and the strong and the impressive. Is that you this morning? This is bad news for the proud. This is really good news for the rest of us. This is really good news for the sinners. This is really good news for the weak and the frail and the broken and the hurting. This is great news for those who say, I have nothing to offer. I'm pathetic. God says, that'll do. That's exactly what God's looking for. So we see God's unfolding plan And we see his his unlikely pick. And we're going to spend a little more time here. We see God's unstoppable promise. His unstoppable promise. Look with me at these just crucial verses in the book of Genesis. This is is the turning point right here. Chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you Of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is God's just kind of first promise to Abram. You're going to see it come back again in uh, a couple of times through Genesis. Maybe this is like the engagement and the wedding ceremony is coming. Um, but God promises to Abram, well, the very same thing that he promised to Shem. That, that he would be blessed. And that, that Japheth uh, would be blessed through him. The rest of the world would be blessed in him. This is God's unstoppable promise. It's a promise of, of his blessing. It's a blessing to Abram and a blessing through Abram to the rest of the world. Now, I want to pause on those first few words. We're we're going to spend a lot more time in the life of Abram. We'll be be here again next week. There's a lot to unpack. Um, But right from the beginning, um, we see the other side of God's unlikely pick, right? This is the other side of the coin. Abram was nothing. He was less than nothing, right? He is thoroughly in debt. Uh, He is a barren idolater, and God calls him. Out of all the people in the world, God calls him. Now, I want to get a little theological this morning. Um, I'm going to make you think a little bit. Because I think there are two significant doctrines that are just beautifully pictured right here. First, in, in God's choosing of Abram. We see God's unconditional election. Unconditional election. Um, that's the theological term. Sorry, kids, there's no way around it. Um, to elect just means to choose. God's choice of Abram um, was not conditional. It wasn't based on something in Abram, right? He wasn't, it wasn't because Abram was better or wiser or stronger or smarter. He didn't, he didn't choose Abram to be the richest man because he already had a bunch of money in the bank. Just like we saw 1 Corinthians 1. It wasn't because you were wise or noble or smart. You can add any other adjective in there you would like. There was nothing about you or me that initiated God's choice. Paul clarifies, going back to to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He did it. He did it. God doesn't choose anyone because of what's in them. No, it's it's unconditional. It's all because of Him. We so easily see things from our worldly perspective, and that's pretty natural. And we think, it was me that chose God. I figured it out. I was the one that came to the place of, of having faith and understanding. And, and that's true in a sense, but there's something else happening behind the scenes. There's more to that. We think we're Christians because we chose God. I'm, I'm in Christ because I had faith, because I chose Him. John fifteen sixteen, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Before you chose God, he chose you. And he didn't choose you because of anything in you. right? And This says, Ephesians 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Romans 9, 15 and 16. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's choosing is not based on your exertion, your effort, your will. God's choosing is based on his mercy, his grace. He is free to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. That's the the first doctrine I think we we see here, this idea of God's choosing based on his own mercy flowing out of his own grace. Secondly, um, we see God's effectual calling. There's another big fun word for you. Um, Effectual is a little strange. It simply means God's calling always has an effect, right? It affects things. It makes a difference. God calls Abram, again, not because anything was in Abram, but just flowing out of his mercy and his grace. And God's call is effectual. It always has its desired effect. God calls Abram, and at the same time, God promises uh, that he will use Abram for this, this great purpose. How does God know that Abram's the right guy? How does he know that, that Abram's going to respond in faith and follow? There's a big risk unless God's call is bigger than that. Now God knows because God's call produces what it requires. Go back to the, the money analogy. Um, God doesn't just call Abraham to be the richest man in the world and then, and then sit back and, and see what happens. He calls Abram to be the richest man in the world and the power of that call creates trillions of dollars in Abram's bank account. Romans 4, Paul is is talking about this call of Abram, and, and he makes this amazing statement, verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So He's referring to God calling Abram in the presence of God and in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul says that God's calling of Abraham to be the the father of a great nation and to be a blessing and to bless the world through him, that was a, a miracle that is like raising the dead. Okay? More than that, Paul says it was like the same kind of miracle that happened on day one of creation. What happened on day one of creation? That's a beautiful analogy for us to kind of grasp and hang on to. God spoke. He said, Let there be light. He called out to light. But light didn't exist yet. There was no such thing as light. But when God called, let there be light, that light which did not previously exist came into being. That's God's effectual call. He calls and it happens. When God spoke and said, let there be land, land that did not previously exist came into existence. God said to Abram, follow me. Where there was once an idol-worshiping barren pagan, a heart of faith and trust in the Lord came into existence by the call of God. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Paul uses the same metaphor again about our salvation. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts, has done the same thing in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God spoke and created light where there was only darkness. And God called and gives the knowledge of his glory into the darkness of the human heart. God's word does not return void. It accomplishes that which he sends it out to do. James 1.18, we're familiar with 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from the Father coming down from the heavenly, of, uh, from our heavenly Father, the Father of lights. Within. There's no turning, no shadow of change. Well, what is the best gift that comes from God? What is our greatest gift? Well, the next verse says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God did it. God did it by his own will. He brought us forth. He brought us into existence, spiritually and physically. And he did it by the word of truth, the gospel. The call of God goes out and brings forth a people of faith. God's unstoppable promise begins with his unconditional election and comes through his effectual calling. His promises are unstoppable because they don't depend on us. don't depend on us the Lord chose Abram the Lord called Abram with the kind of call that only God can give a call that produces faith and obedience now let's look at this command and the blessing a little bit we'll pick up on this more next week but um, it's hard to see there are actually two commands in this verse Um, each command is followed by three promises so the first command is go And then there are these three promises. The first three promises are to Abram personally. They're to to him. Number one, I will make you a great nation. That's what God's going to do. After knocking down and spreading out the people at Babel and saying, Nuh-uh, not happening this way. God says to Abram, I will make you great. Number two, I will bless you. Not only will Abram be great, but he will have the favor of God, the kindness of God toward him. And then number three, I will make your name great. Again, he's contrasting against the Tower of Babel. The people gathered together to build a tower. Why? Um, to make a name for themselves. And God says, no, not happening that way. And then he says to Abram, I will make you great. I will make your name great. The next command there is the next thing, and, and it's, it's really convoluted grammatically. It's, it's tough to understand, tough to interpret. Um, it is an imperative. It's, a, it's, a, it's written in this kind of command mode, um, but it's also written with a so that. There's a vav there. Um, and so it's this command, but it's coming out of God's blessing. God will bless Abraham so that he will command, be a blessing, Abraham. And So the second set of three promises are for the world. For the world. Number one, I will bless those who bless you. Just like the Lord promised to Shem, you're going to be a blessing to the nations, right? The nations are going to come to you and dwell in your tents because Yahweh is your God. They're going to be blessed as they come into you. The same way, those who bless Abram, those who come to him, will be blessed. The second promise, just another, the the other side of the coin from the first one, him who dishonors you, I will curse. Notice this is lopsided, right? It's not even. He doesn't say, um, those who curse you, I will curse, but rather those who dishonor you, I will curse. Dishonor is lighter. There's a heavy hammer for a smaller action. Those who take him lightly, those who just kind of cast him aside, those who don't honor Abram, God doesn't say, I will take them lightly or I will not give them honor. He says, I will curse them. Now, that might seem extreme. That might seem unfair reaction from God, right? The the punishment seems worse than the crime. But we need to get this. All of humanity is in rebellion against God. We've sinned against him. We all deserve nothing less than than hell itself. That That is the right thing for us. That would be fair for all of us. And this is God's incredibly gracious, shockingly kind, unbelievably generous gift making a way that we could be rescued. And so, yeah, if you reject that, If you look at what God is doing through Abram and you think meh don't really care then yes you'll be cursed you'll be damned you'll get what you deserve so many people get hung up on this like really there's only one way you're trying to tell me that there's only one little narrow way to get to God you miss the point there's a way he opened a way and you would reject that because there's not two ways or four ways no God made a way and yes, those who reject it reject God. So God will bless those who bless Him, He will curse those who dishonor Him. Uh, and then the third promise, through Him, through Abram, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God says this again with confidence. This is a promise. This work that I'm doing through Abram is unstoppable. It will succeed through Abram. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, the, the word family there is probably a little broader than we would usually use. The word family is more like kind of tribe or, or clan. Um, but through Abram, God will bless every other family. How? How's this going to happen? How does this play out? How is this plan through Abram going to come to be? Well, God's plan would continue to unfold through the generations who would continue through Abram to Isaac and from Isaac to Jacob, and from from Jacob he would become uh, the nation of Israel. God would continue to add to those promises and and unveil his plan through Moses and through David and through the prophets. And God would bless that family, the, the family of Israel, the family of Abram would be his beloved people. But through that family would come A blessing not only to Israel, but to the world, to all the nations. Do you know who else is a descendant of Shem through the line of Abram? Sunday school answer, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram. Jesus was the promised rescuer. Through Jesus, the blessing of God would come not just to Israel, but through Israel to the rest of the world. Jesus would come, born of the woman. Interesting there that the virgin birth flows out of that. God himself come down and yes, the serpent would bruise his heel, would hurt him. Jesus was hung up on the cross. It looked like Satan had won and Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. When he died in the place of sinners, paying the penalty of death, taking the curse of sin upon himself. He came through in victory, and just as God had promised, those who dishonor him, those who look at at Jesus and say, meh, don't really care, they will be cursed. They will be cursed. They will be under the curse of God, and they will get what their sins deserve. But those who bless him, those who come to Jesus, not the the strong and the wise and the respectable, but those who are sinful and wicked, who are weak and unimpressive, those who are far from God, but whom God chose in eternity past based on nothing in themselves, flowing just out of his grace and mercy. Those whom he calls in such a way that in their dark hearts, the light of the glory of God begins to shine. And faith comes in that sees the the beauty and the wonder of Jesus Christ. Faith that that looks up at the cross and says, that's my Savior. Just as he's Promise was unstoppable as it unfolded through uh, Adam to Noah, and from Noah to Abram, and from Abram to Jesus. So, also, it will be unstoppable in doing its good work. And those who believe, those who bless Him in that way, will be blessed by God. They'll be blessed with forgiveness of sin. They'll be blessed with His sanctifying, purifying work in their hearts and lives. They will be blessed with eternal life in His perfect presence. This is the unstoppable promise of our glorious God. I invite uh, Rachel and Danielle to come and join me and prepare to lead us in worship again. We're going to celebrate. And we're going to celebrate communion together. Um, communion is a, is a practical symbol of, of the blessing of God. As we take of communion together, we're, we're saying, that's my Savior. That's my Savior. We're coming to see and to savor Jesus Christ to say again, I I am nothing. I bring nothing to the table. I need that rescuer, and he is that rescuer. Uh, And so if you're a visitor with us this morning, you're more than welcome to to partake and join with us. Um, But the question is, is that you? Um, If you're not looking at the cross and saying, that's my Savior, I'm a a sinner in need of grace, then, then we'd ask you to to not partake, just to observe and, and to consider. Consider your sin, your need before God. But for those who, who are believers this morning who are coming with that declaration, we, we come in rejoicing in God's grace and his kindness, his faithfulness through the ages uh, coming to us in Christ Jesus. So um, would you stand? Um, we'll sing together as the elements are handed out. Um, you'll find two cups with the bread on the bottom and the juice on the top. And so just hang on to that. And uh, I'll come back up and we'll partake together in a moment.